0: This is the one-year Bible reading for August 8th. We are in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, and we're kind of going back in time at the moment because we've just heard about the decree to rebuild the temple and how that was finally accomplished after many years of trouble. Um, But now we're going back and hearing about some of the same history from a more personal perspective, um, from Ezra's perspective in particular, who of course is the writer of the book. Many years later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. He was the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zariah. Son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the high priest. So what do we know about this, right? He's a Levite. Um, he has this heritage going all the way back to Aaron, the high priest. This Ezra was a scribe well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon. And the king gave him everything he asked for, because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra lived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had left Babylon on April 8th and came to Jerusalem on August 4th, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those laws and regulations to the people of Israel. King Artaxerxes had given a copy of the following letter to Ezra, the priest and scribe who studied and taught the commands and laws of the Lord to Israel. This is the letter. Greetings from Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, of the God of heaven. I decree that any of the people of Israel in my kingdom, including the priests and Levites, may volunteer to return to Jerusalem with you. I and my council of seven hereby instruct you to conduct an inquiry into the situation in Judah and Jerusalem based on your God's law, which is in your hand. We also commission you to take with you some silver and gold, which are freely presenting, which we are freely presenting as an offering to the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. Moreover, you are to take any silver and gold which you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and the priests who are presented for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. These donations are to be used specifically for the purchase of bulls, rams, lambs, and the appropriate grain and drink offerings, all of which will be offered on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Any money that is left over may be used in whatever way you and your colleagues feel is the will of your God. But as for the utensils we are entrusting to you for the service of the temple of your God, deliver them in full to the God of Jerusalem. If you run short of money for God's temple or of any similar needs, you may requisition funds from the royal treasury. I, Artaxerxes the king, hereby send this decree to all the treasurers in the province west of the Euphrates River. You are to give Ezra whatever he requests of you, for he is a priest and a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. You are to give him up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine, 550 gallons of olive oil, and an unlimited supply of salt be careful to provide whatever the God of heaven demands for his temple, for why should we risk bringing God's anger against the realm of the king and his sons? I also decree that no priest, Levite, singer, gatekeeper, temple servant, or other worker in this uh, this temple of God will be required to pay taxes of any kind. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. If the people are not familiar with those laws, you must teach them. Anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king will be punished immediately by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. That's the end of the letter. Praise the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. That is a praise. He's a pagan king. And praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love to me by honoring me before the king, his council, and all his mighty princes. I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered some of the leaders of Israel to return with me to Jerusalem. Here's a list of the family leaders and the genealogies of those who came with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes, from the family of Phinehas, Gershom, from the family of Ithamar, Daniel, from the family of David, Hattush, son of Sekaniah, from the family of Perosh Zechariah, and 150 other men, from the family of Pahath moab Elihoniah, son of Zerahiah, and 200 other men. From the family of Zatu, Sekaniah, son of Jehaziel, and 300 other men. From the family of Adon, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and 50 other men. From the family of Elam, Jesheah, son of Athaliah, and 70 other men. From the family of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and 80 other men. From the family of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehel, and a 218 other men. From the family of Bani, Shalometh, son of Jehosaphiah, and 160 other men. From the family of Bebi, Zechariah, son of Bebi, and 28 other men. From the family of Asgad, Jehonan, son of Hakatan, and 110 other men. From the family of Adonakam, who came later, Ephelet, Jeuel, Shemaiah and sixty other men from the family of Bigvai, Uthai, Zakur, and seventy other men. I assembled the exiles at the Ahava Canal, and we camped there for three days while I went over the lists of the people and the priests who had arrived. So this is why these lists are important. I found that not one Levite had volunteered to come along, and why had not all of the remnant from Judah returned? or desired to return, and the reason, as we talked about a few days ago, was that it's been 70 years, and a lot of them have set up homes and businesses successfully in the region that was controlled by Babylon, and they don't particularly want to go back. It's a, it's a shambles, right? It's a rubble. So I sent for El- uh, Eliza, Ariel, Shemaiah, F. Ethnathan, Jarib, Nathan. Jareb, L. Nathan uh Nathan Zechariah and Meshulam, who were leaders of the people I also sent for Jorab and El Nathan who were very wise men I sent them to Edo the leader of the Levites at Casiphaya to ask him and his relatives and the temple servants to send us ministers for the temple of the God at Jerusalem Since the gracious hand of our God was on us they sent us a man a man named Sherebiah along with 18 of his sons and brothers. He was a very astute man and a descendant of Mahli, who was a descendant of Levi, son of Israel. They also sent Hashabiah together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Morare, and 20 of his sons and brothers, and 220 temple servants. The temple servants were assistants to the Levites, a group of temple workers first instituted by King David. They were all listed by name. And we saw that list at the beginning of the chapter. So we'll hear more about their travels uh, tomorrow. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, and it starts with so. So we're going to look back and see so what. And the so what is that Paul has instructed people not to affiliate with a particular leader, but with Christ himself. So he says, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's secrets. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. But what about me? Have I been faithful? Well, it matters very little what you or anyone else thinks. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that isn't what matters. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So be careful not to jump to conclusions before the Lord returns as to whether or not someone is faithful. When the Lord comes, he will bring our deepest deepest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to everyone whatever praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to the scriptures, you won't brag about one of your leaders to the expense of another. What makes you better than anyone else? And do you have that uh, What do you have that God hasn't given you? If all you have is from God, why boast as though you have accomplished something on your own? If you think you already have everything you need, you are already rich. Without us, you have become kings. I wish you really were on thrones already, for then we would be reigning with you. But sometimes I think God has put us apostles on display, like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you are so wise. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are well thought of, but we are laughed at. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, without enough clothes to keep us warm. We have endured many beatings, and we have no homes of our own. We have worked warily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We respond gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. I am not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So I ask you to follow my example and do as I do. That is the reason I am sending Timothy to help you to do this. For he is my beloved and trustworthy child in the Lord. He will remind you of what I teach about Christ Jesus in all the churches wherever I go. I know that some of you have become arrogant, thinking I will never visit you again. But I will come, and soon, if the Lord will let me. And then I'll find out whether these arrogant people are just big talkers or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just fancy talk. It is living by God's power. Which do you choose? Should I come with punishment and scolding, or should I come with quiet love and gentleness? Psalm 30 a psalm of David sung at the dedication of the temple. I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. You refused to let the enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. His anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may go on all night, but joy comes, uh, comes with the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, has made me as secure as a mountain. Then you turned away from me and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, what will you gain if I die, if I sink down into the grave? Can my dust praise you from the grave? Can it tell the world of your faithfulness? Hear me, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Proverbs twenty twenty eight through 30. Unfailing love and faithfulness protect the king. His throne is made secure, Through love. The glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. Physical punishment cleanses away evil. Such discipline purifies the heart. And to end today, we are back in The Life You Always Wanted by John Ortberg, starting in the next chapter, which is called Life Beyond Regret The Practice of Confession. It starts with a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which says, Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. And Ordberg writes, I believe... That what many of us are searching for is not simply another message reassuring us that God forgives freely. As wonderful as it is, that information alone is not enough to enable people to grow in their experience of God's liberating forgiveness. Many of us struggle at this point, not so much with understanding the message of forgiveness, but with living in the reality of it. And this section is called Confession for Our Healing This inability to accept the reality of forgiveness is the reason that God has given us the practice of confession. Sometimes people wonder, if I'm a Christian and God has already forgiven me, why do I have to confess? This is looking at confession the wrong way. Confession is not primarily something God has us do because He needs it. God is not clutching tightly to His mercy as if we have to pry it from His fingers like a child's last cookie. We need to confess in order to be healed and changed. Nor is confession simply an accounting procedure. That sin was on the debit side of God's ledger, and now I have confessed it and it got erased. Confession is not mechanical. It is a practice that, done wisely, will help us become transformed. When we practice confession well, two things happen. The first is that we are liberated from guilt. The second is that we will be at least a little less likely to sin in the same way in the future than if we had not confessed. Sin will look and feel less attractive. So how do we practice confession in a way that begins to heal our souls? What hope is there for stained people like us? Confession that helps us experience the power of forgiveness is a process, not a single act. Let us think about confession as a six-step process process for spiritual stain removal. And tune in tomorrow to find out what that six-step process is. Hope you have a beautiful day. Love you all.